0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: What I'm trying to do is to normalize being a hot mess. Even if you're successful and doing all these things, and, you know, I'm, yes, I, that's my life. But I I still cry in the shower, you know, sometimes. So I think realizing that you can still have a happy life even though you've got some darkness in you, I think that's the way to go.
0: This is Death, Sex and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. You know Alan Cumming. Depending on how old you are, you might remember the Scottish actor as Eli Gold on The Good Wife, or the Pee-wee Herman-esque TV host in the Spy Kids movies, or the MC in Cabaret.
1: Welcome, Bienvenue,
0: Welcome, étranger, stranger. Alan is 56 now, and he's just written a memoir called Baggage, Tales from a Fully Packed Life. It begins around the time that he first performed that role in Cabaret in the mid-1990s, as his career was taking off and he was figuring out his public identity.
1: I was in Hollywood. I was making a couple of big films there. And I found these pair of glasses on a on a uh, sunglasses stall in at Venice Beach, and I... They were just round black glasses and I just they didn't have any, you know, they wasn't enough black sunglass stuff in them, it was just clear. And I just thought these were the greatest frames for me. And I write about in the book about how there's a play by Terence McNally about Maria Callas and she says, everyone must have a look. And she's doing this lecture and she looks at this person and the audience goes, you do not have a look. <laughs> and I think it's, that became my look, because it's a look that really suits me. And I, I bought them and I thought I'm going to make these my prescription glasses and I went to Australia and I got the uh, lenses put into the frames in a little optometrist in Melbourne and the lady was, that's where my favourite Australian saying came about. She, I said, are you able to do this? You know, I've got these sunglasses and can you put my prescriptions in? And I'm only here till Friday. Can you do that? And she went, shouldn't be a drama. And I just love it because (laughs) it shouldn't be a drama. You know what I mean? It was was just that great, (laughs) absolutely... uh, sort of, you know, jaded and doer kind of delivery of this lady saying something was absolutely true. It shouldn't be a drama. And I just love that.
0: Alan was attracted to this no drama mantra after a period of a lot of drama in his own life. His first marriage had fallen apart, he was struggling with an eating disorder, and he was coming to terms with the physical and emotional abuse he'd endured from his father when he was a child. When his marriage ended, Alan moved into his own place for the first time, which suddenly forced him to make choices about what he wanted his life and his surroundings to look like.
1: I discovered that I really like colorful things, bright things. You know, in my first marriage, I very much gave all that sort of responsibility to my wife. And I just I'd never, I'd never had to sort of understand what I liked in that way. I was very passive. And then all of a sudden I was 30 and I had this apartment and it was mine. I could do whatever I liked with it. And I thought, what would I do? And I just painted the entire thing bright yellow.
0: And I want to ask you about about your eating at the time. Um, you describe struggling with an eating disorder, but what, what were the? how did you understand it at the time, what was happening with how you were eating?
1: I was aware when people started to get worried about me and sort of say you're too skinny you're not eating enough you know I, and i you know you sort of you know maybe skip a few meals you sort of sort of think oh well whatever and then you, it becomes a habit becomes a pattern i mean i realized it was it was the only way i could control there's only thing i could control in my life i mean i think that's all what all eating disorders are about people feel out of control and the only thing they can control is their body and then that becomes an addiction about eating less and less to sort of, you know, that's the only thing you can control. And, you know, you don't quite realise that at the time, but then you get, then I got really annoyed with everybody for being so concerned. I thought, you know, don't be concerned about my weight, be concerned about me. And I just, it made me want to do it more. I remember being, having a dinner with friends when they came to see me in a show, in Cabaret actually, when I did it first in London. And, you know, they were all, I was sort of sitting at the end of the table, just sort of picking at a salad, being very, antisocial. And I could, I I remember they're all really concerned. So it's just all, and it's sort of funny, you get sort of, you feel very objectified and that people are only talking about your body, not about you. And also I felt I was very much sort of being lauded for being skinny. You know, that's, that was something that was happening as my, my skinniness was sort of a prefix to everything I did.
0: When was the first time you talked to another man about having disordered eating
1: I get I had a therapist right about that time called Chris uh in London so he I think it would be him yeah I mean I didn't really speak to at that point I didn't really speak to anyone um about what was going on with me I just I was very I didn't I kind of hid it all so it, it was a really, really, really difficult time. And, you know, now I understand all these things. I understand these things about eating and the power thing. and about I understand that I was de- depressed because I was having flashbacks, repressed memories coming, a very violent, horrible thing. So when I talked to, I think it was talking to his therapist about it, I, he was great, actually. It's like, you know, sometimes you just, all the... Stars align and you meet someone who just you are able to connect with a therapist. I mean, I think it's it's a very intimate and sort of chance-like, you know, uh, interactions. And with him, I think it was I was it was it was a, it was a lot going on, <laughs> and he was really really helpful. You know, he was my sort of savior in a way. He really gave me back my
0: confidence. Do you find when you're stressed? Now in your life, or or years after you were thirty, do you find that that sometimes it it shows up with the way that you eat?
1: It has uh, a few times, yeah, yeah. I've I've mean, the in spaces where I sort of you know been so busy you forget to eat and you kind of slightly get off on the fact that you haven't eaten and stuff like that, and then you can sort of see changes in your body. And also, you know, as you get older, things your body changes, your metabolism changes. Like right now, I I feel like I have put on a little bit of weight, I've noticed. I did this this show uh, in August going around Scotland in a van with Miriam Margulies, the English actress, sort of a travel series for Channel 4. You know, we had chips, french fries, with every meal for like a month, including (laughs) breakfast. (laughs) And, uh, you know, then I came back to New York and suddenly it was fashion week and I was doing all these events and I was, you know, and I'm going for fittings and I used to, I, I'm sort of sample size, so when they, you know, I don't have to go for fittings. People just send clothes over and they fit. And also, I've been doing quite a lot of, you know, exit weights and things in, in my in, in the pandemic. So my chest has got a little bigger. Uh, I've gone to a forty chest. Can you believe wow. it? Wow. And and uh, yeah, and I, then I sort of thought after all the chips and Scotland, I put on a little bit of weight on my tummy, and I was like, ooh, this is these this, this thirty two waist, a little tight. Um, so you know, I really, I guess I'm. I I notice things like that. I kind of like being sample size. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I kind of keep fit and all that sort of stuff. But it's not sort of... I don't see it in quite the sort of negative, damaging way. I don't sort of think I, I need to do this because that's the only control I have over my situation in my life. Not at all. But I'm always very vigilant about it, tipping into danger areas.
0: When you think about like at that first period of your life when you really felt like you got to feel carefree um and and have fun, um how much was sex and drugs part of that?
1: Um not like a massive part though, but I sort of, you know, sex was uh I definitely went into a phase where I was having a lot more sex and uh yeah I kind of you know that was sort of that was fun and I I, that relationship as in was very sort of very sexual one and uh in a a really healthy way I think and um and then when that ended I kind of you know sort of expanded a little more my um sexual partners and stuff like that and had a few years of being very I guess that was my more debauched phase and that's where I kind of you know I would do I I would go out dancing you know ecstasy was the sort of the sort of party drug of the t- of the time, and I, I use that. I've never kind of done. I'm not sort of a. Uh, I mean, I I I I I like getting stoned. I'm a bit of a stoner, and um, I like drugs that make you feel happy. You know, I don't like drugs that make you speedy and wired and kind of mean uh, and paranoid. I like to relax and have fun and feel positive and loved up.
0: Um, when when you think about. Uh, you, you said your debauched years, your more debauched years, was that like the late the nine the late nineties? When was that period of your life?
1: Yeah, so yeah, the late nineties, I uh, including an end to the two thousands actually. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and and to, can you put to words like for you doing ecstasy and and feeling loved up? Like, what did you like about the feeling? What did it open up for you?
1: What I like about it is this sort of this tingly feeling your body is kind of, you have these rushes and it's, and it's all sort of tingly and and you're sort of breathless almost, and it's a bit like having a panic attack. It's kind of like what happens when you have a, an actual panic attack. And then, then, then it kind of changes into this really euphoric, sensual glow. So what I really liked about it was that it mirrored, the beginning part mirrored what I was experiencing quite a lot in my life at that time, which was being sort of a bit short of breath and panicky and you know anxious, and then I, it, I so that it mirrored that, but then it forced me to sort of go over the edge into total relaxation and joy and and uh, release, and that I couldn't do in real life. I kind of self-medicated with with ecstasy, and I think it actually it worked. It really did, did the trick.
0: Coming up, Alan tells me about meeting his now husband and deciding to settle down.
1: If you're going to start a new relationship when you're 40, it's, you should think that this is it. And so, if it's going to be it, uh, you don't. You want to just look back at all your other relationships, and say, okay, what went wrong? What was I bad at? What was I good at? What do I need? Let's just get it on the table.
0: from quite a few of you about housing, since we asked to hear from those of you who consider your current situation temporary. You've sent in stories about the quest to find something more affordable, about moving back home, and about other short-term choices you've had to make. We're compiling these for an upcoming series we're working on with BuzzFeed News all about housing. And we recently heard from a listener named Tavi, who has been living in the Bay Area since 2007.
1: If you were queer or an artist, trans, um, if you were a sex worker or a performance artist, like this was the place. And it was kind of bohemian paradise, if you will.
0: Tavi bounced around a variety of living spaces until January, when they said they were illegally evicted from their last place. They found temporary housing through a friend, but it only lasts until June of next year. And Tavi said it no longer feels sustainable to stay in the Bay Area. So they're hitting the road this summer to figure out where to live next.
1: I am converting my Prius to a live-in tiny home on wheels, and my plan is to go state by state, and both see places that i as a queer and trans person might feel safe living and also while i'm at it i'll see some national parks and beautiful places have some adventures and that's my plan wish me luck
0: if you're also in a temporary housing situation, tell us about it. Record a voice memo and describe your current living situation to us. Then email it to us at deathsexmoney@wnyc.org. At just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After his first marriage ended, Alan Cumming had a series of relationships with women and men throughout his 30s including one that he now describes as abusive, and sometimes even violent.
1: Not like violent in the scale that my father was, but when that came into it, I I was like, oh, this is really, we've got to go out here right now. They were angry and I thought I could fix them. I thought it was my fault and that uh, neither of those things were true.
0: So then, when Alan was first getting together with his husband, artist Grant Staffer, he knew he wanted to do things differently.
1: I'd definitely been around the block a few times. So I was very in a phase of now being very sanguine and sort of honest and not being, not trying to sort of uh, sweeten myself. And because I knew what I was capable of and I knew what I, needed and I just was and I just thought I don't want to go through some other mess you know I don't want to do that again obviously I just was falling in love with him but I also just didn't want it to I didn't want to blow it and I didn't want to sort of present a false picture of myself and he did that too you know he was he came back to me with his honesty and so it was a really great way to start a relationship
0: Hmm. when you think about the beginning of that relationship and that honesty were there ways that you sort of structured what y- you wanted to expect from one another in a, in a relationship that you verbalized that you hadn't in previous relationships about how it could work? Yeah.
1: I mean, I just, I, I hadn't really ever done that before. You know, I just thought you just sort of meet someone, you fall in love with them, you just kind of think, oh, here we go. Whereas I think that, you know, I, I mean, he said to me that, you know, it's, he he, he knew me quite well by this point. Um and he said, he said, you know, it seems you like drama and I don't want to do drama. And I was, and I, and I, and he was right. It did seem like that. I had, I had a lot of drama going on in, in my life, in my personal, you know, love life, if you will. And I, I said to him, I know it looks like that, but seriously, I do not want drama. It's, I mean, I, I have obviously, I am to blame for that. I, I, I let it happen. I stayed and you know I was in a in a sort of a you know in a kind of a cycle that I didn't I wasn't very proud of and I couldn't get out of and I felt I could fix it and I you know, it's the thing when you're in abuse in an abusive relationship the first time something crazy happens, you sort of think, oh gosh, that was terrible. I wonder why that happened. And then once it's happened two times then it becomes the norm and it's you know, and then there you are you're in this really mental well, mental's not quite the best but sort of you know screwed up and unhealthy thing and you've and you've not and it becomes your norm so quickly. And so I was realizing all those things about myself. I was realizing that I needed to break the cycle of those trying to fix people and allowing myself to fall into those situations because it was familiar to me, you know, that's what I was realizing. It was where I was comfortable, um even though I was it was awful. So I I I that was that was a situation where I was like, no, I don't want I really don't want that. It's not my sweet spot.
0: Two years later, Alan and Grant got married in London in a civil ceremony, and were married again in New York in 2012. In your in your relationship now, is is monogamy important to you?
1: Um, no. I mean, it's not. It's not. Um, something that I think is uh, essential to my well-being. I wasn't successful at being monogamous when I thought that it was the best thing to do. I think by my very dint of my gender, that's a more difficult thing for me to achieve or to maintain. And then I just sort of, over the years, sort of realized that it wasn't, why was I, why was I... If something happened, why would that be the worst thing in the world? I've seen so many relationships just end overnight because of one stupid sort of, you know, blowjob or something. I just think it's so ridiculous that that, and I think there's many, many ways that you can betray someone much more deeply than that. And if you have a situation where you have talked about the fact that that might happen in your life and that you will handle it with kindness and respect and care, then it just, it becomes less scary, I think. I think you know, more so in same-sex relationships, it's something that people have an understanding of, uh, and that if it happens, it's not, it's either understood or it's agreed upon, or it's just a sort of thing that you know you have you've talked about it and you've come to some agreement about it that suits you, that suits your relationship. But for me, I feel like I'm not going to pretend I'm going to be able to do something that I just know I can't do, and also that I don't want to do. It's not that I go around having sex with people all, all over the place. But if that were to happen, I feel that, uh, that that's, you know, something that we've sorted out between us.
0: You write in the acknowledgements of your book um, about your husband. Uh, he was responding to seeing you on social media intoxicatedly crowd surfing, wearing a monkey suit <laughs> on another continent. and And you quote your husband saying, Alan is a butterfly and we have to let him fly. And what a loving, loving thing for a partner to say that is both seeing you and fully like loving you and how you are in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And like sometimes, like, uh, you know, for the last year, like with the pandemic and, you know, there's times when, he was very worried. I was I was starting to travel again. And, you know, just he was, he was very worried about because I'm asthmatic. And you know, before we were vaccinated, it was quite scary. You know, I, I was worried about if I caught it, how, how I that would, you know, my asthma might, it could be really difficult for me. And um, I remember the, <laughs> there was one time where he didn't want me to go to the supermarket and he goes, right, well, let me do it. I'll go and you stay here. And I said, you are trying to keep me in a room. You're trying to, it's like that film. With the you know, you can't you can't keep me in the house. You're asking to sort of imprison me in the house.
0: Wait, are you talking about the Bree Larson movie where she's stuck in the
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little more swanky than that, the room I was in. But nonetheless, you know, I was saying to him, You can't do that. You to, you've crossed a line that, you know, I'm a grown up. He was just anxious and being kind, you know, being caring and but sometimes people's caring and anxiety can kind of go too far and sort of impede your your life. So anyway, when that was all happening, I said, I'm a butterfly, remember? And he was like, yes, oh yes, you're right. I've got to let you fly. I've got to let you fly. Let yeah, you, fly. you
0: have to go to the store. You can go to the store. I have to
1: go to the supermarket, yes. <laughs> Even butterflies have to go to the supermarket. <laughs>
0: Is there anything about being uh, 56 that surprises you, like being <laughs> this age?
1: I mean, lots actually, because you know, I sort of, you know, if I was 20 years ago, I think 56. Oh my God, I'll be, you know, pudgy and in my pajamas all day, and or you know, I don't know what I think, but I, 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 um, I, I had this vision of. I, mean, I remember when I was. <laughs> at drama school thinking, oh God, 21, my life will be over. Uh 30, ah, oh, ancient. Uh, you know, all that stuff that we go, the, the goalposts change as you get older in terms of what you think of age, uh, what you do at certain ages.
0: Yeah, you have a line where you write something like, life is a slow march to death. We might as well <laughs> <Yes>. have fun.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is though. You know, I, I'm decaying in front of you right now as we have this conversation we're both decaying. And uh, I just think, let's just enjoy it, you know, and the whole trajectory of my life is so alien to what I thought it was going to be. It's so it's completely not uh, what I thought was transcribed for me or what I expected or what I hoped even. And uh, so I just find it, I find it amazing that I'm able to do all the things that I still do and want to do. And, and I feel like I'm re- still in touch with, still able to be in touch with. You know, younger people who who are young enough to be my ch- children. Uh, I have that sort of connection. But at the same time, I've got wisdom from having been through the life I've been through. And so it's a nice combo.
0: Do you have any fears about aging?
1: Um, I mean, not about aging as in getting older. And I mean, it's, it's obviously things, you know, you think, oh, is that my f- shape of my face is a little, I've got little jowls now or, you know, it's, it's harder to lose weight than it used to be. I still feel, you know, fit and kind of healthy. Uh, and I like the way my body's going. I like the way I'm looking. I like having grey hair. I, you know, it's funny. The other day I'm doing this film with Katie Holmes and I went for my costume fitting and I'm, in the in the, in the description of the description of the character, it said he was a uh, kind, early 60s, thinning hair. And I was like, well, I can do the kind. And, uh, but you know, I'm sort of into that thing now. I'm playing like people in their 60s. So I got my costume fitting and um, a a couple of the, I heard myself say, no, this is not good. My ass looks too good in this. And I thought, (laughs) I don't, I'm actually at the stage where I'm trying to disguise my, I'm trying to make myself look older.
0: Look a little more frumpy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And sort of, you know, less, uh, less high and tight. So we'll see how long that lasts.
0: (laughs) That's Alan Cumming. His new memoir is called Baggage, Tales from a Fully Packed Life. And if you or a loved one needs support around an eating disorder, you can call or text the helpline of the National Eating Disorders Association at 800-931-2237. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Affie Yellow Duke. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botine, Caitlin Pierce, and Andrew Dunn. Annabelle Bacon also worked on this episode. Our intern is Sarah Dealey. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnasalePix, that's P I C S. And the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Jill Riley in South Boston, Massachusetts, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Jill and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Alan has been keeping up with his at-home workouts, and he told me about how he stays motivated while he does them.
1: In my gym, I've little shared as a gym, uh where i've been lifting weights where your chest has gotten large yes my my (laughs) two inch expansion from 38 to 40. uh i've done this thing where this shed is entirely covered with photographs of me from throughout the years from magazine covers and film posters that's amazing and so i exercise (laughs) to thousands of images of my younger hotter self it's a very sort of a good inspiration to you know do another thousand meters on the rowing machine or something